Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with David Greenberg. He is the Senior Vice President and Head of Data Analytics and Research at Bank Mobile in the US. David studied applied physics and began began his career as a consultant. Then he had his own consulting company where they created a video asset management and workflow software in the 90s, way, way ahead of its time. He then worked in the education slash not-for-profit sector. Then he went to the finance industry to work as VP of business intelligence and data analytics. And as I mentioned today, he is the senior vice president and head of data analytics and research at Bank Mobile. In this episode, we discuss insights into large companies from his early days as consultant, as a consultant, what you need to look for when building a diverse team, the importance of creating a narrative in analytics. He tells us why data is like a flashlight. We hear a lot of lessons from his tech startup and He tells us also why, as analytics professionals, we're entering the world of expectation management. It's a really great episode. I hope that you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with David Greenberg. How are you doing, mate? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Ah, thank you so much for making the time. I've been looking forward to, to speaking with you for quite a while. So thank you for taking time out of your day uh, to do, do, do the interview and share your, your thoughts and your views. So at the beginning, I wanted to ask you, how, how did you get started in the data space? What was it that drew you in and that uh, made you uh, get started here? Well, I kind of fell into it backwards, I think. I, I didn't come out of college or graduate school ready to go into the data world. In fact, I think when I came out of college back in the 90s, this whole world didn't exist yet. And I started working in, uh, in New York for consulting firms back sort of at the dawn of the internet era. And it occurred to me as I was starting to learn about these different projects that I was working on with various different banks, that data was really the thing that everyone was trying to get their handle on, was the information. How do I display it better? How do I look at it? Can I get it? Why is it taking so long? Why does it make any sense? And I started to recognize that data was really important. Now, I wish I could say at the time that I was as uh, 
cognizant of all the things that I am now. But it took quite some time for me to make all those logical connections in my head. But I was naturally propelled, I think, along that path by the needs of these different companies and trying to make sense of all that new information that was suddenly available to them. So if you're thinking about it, we're talking 1997, intranets was the big thing. You know, you had Lotus Domino, which was, you know, the internet everywhere. Like, oh my God, I can get access to this information. And I think the first <laughs> challenge that I noticed was that the definitions were very different across different parts of companies. So what you were really doing was creating the first horizontal integration among various different vertically integrated companies. And they were like, well, I don't know what that means. What does this mean? Well, I don't call it that. I call it this. And as the guy who was responsible for building those systems, I was trying to, how do I manage when, you know, somebody in this department says that the definition is this and someone in that department says the definition is that. And suddenly you're like, well, you know, I can, well, okay, big problem. And I started to realize how important the flow of data was with these companies. And as my career evolved, I started to really become fascinated by that and I allowed myself to really explore those areas. So I kind of like to think I fell into it backwards is, is sort of the uh, the way that it happens. That is excellent. And I can, I can totally relate. In, in my degree, there was very little focus on on data and then ever since I started working it was all all about data so that's that's really interesting and and tell me uh, tell us a little bit about your background and your journey so far well you know my education I, I studied applied physics at Cornell and uh, I chose not to continue on in physics I, I I recognized at the time that I didn't love physics to the degree of which I would have needed to in order to be able to pursue the PhD and the teaching and the research and I transitioned quickly Quickly, and I got my master's degree in engineering and then moved to New York, um, started working in consulting, spent a couple of years there. Uh, then I started my own business for a few years. Um, then I went to go work in the nonprofit space for a few years and then and now have ended up in financial services. You know, it, it's been an interesting progression. I've had a couple of interesting side careers as well. You know, I was a fireman for, for many years as well in there. Oh, wow. And it, it was it's it's been a fascinating journey. I've been I've had the opportunity to be exposed to the way a lot of different companies work with their information. And there are a lot of consistent trends among all of them, but they all use it in different ways. And I, I've been fortunate to really learn a lot along my, my path and, and have picked up some a variety of different techniques, which I've been able to apply uh, over and over again that have, have made uh, my role, made my, my career successful along the way. So. Exactly. That is that is fascinating. And uh, I'll, we'll be diving into each one of those stages. So I first want to ask you about your time in, in consulting. Um, mm -hmm. What what uh, what did that time teach you, considering that it was sort of early in your career and that you would be exposed to lots of different places and companies? What, uh, what did you learn during that time? You know, it was interesting. I think one of the things that I really learned is that I had the perception for a very long time, especially when I was growing up, that big companies knew what they were doing. And I think when you're a consultant and you're brought into big companies, it's suddenly very eye-opening to say, oh my God, these people have no idea what they're up to. I mean, they're very good at particular <laughs> functions, but there are things like, oh my God, shouldn't this company already know this stuff? Or shouldn't that company already have figured out how to do that? And why are they relying on the advice of, at that time, a 23-year-old kid? And I was just blown away. So I was mesmerized by the 
quote unquote influence that I had at that point of my relatively inexperienced career over companies yes. that I had always assumed were knowing better. So I learned really, really fast that you got to be really, you got to be really hands on and really knowledgeable what you're doing because they're taking what you say very seriously and they're applying it and there really isn't much of a, okay, we'll go ask a grown up next. You know, they're asking yes. a 23 year old kid what they think. And that's the answer. So it was a, you know, it was a fascinating opportunity to grow up really fast and to learn that kind of stuff. I was also at the dawn, like I mentioned earlier, at the, of the internet age when I was doing this consulting. So a lot of these technologies were new to everyone, very, very intimidated by it. You know, it was changing the way in which companies had operated historically with new uh, methods. My, the company that I worked for, because it was a, a Lotus Domino consulting company, was primarily focused on workflow solutions. How do we improve and automate workflow? And that was fascinating to understand how different companies passed work along a process and interacted with it and understanding how each person needed to be involved in different capacities and learning about what all these different departments did and how they all needed to work together but really were not working together quite well and how this technology could be leveraged to help them. But I think the most important thing I learned there was that technology is not a solution. Technology is a series of guardrails to constrain your solutions so that people don't run off the reservation or run off of the of the pasture. So that business policies, uh, strategic decisions on how you're going to operate are the first thing that you do. And then you build the technology to constrain people so that they don't deviate from those policies and they can continue to exist as you've designed them. But the, te not, not, the technology itself was not the solution. It was just the uh, the guardrails. That's fantastic. And and so so interesting. I never heard it described like that as, as having technology be the guardrails. How, how did you come to, to that conclusion or that insight? Um, it was understanding that every time that I would or the company would have proposed a solution, people would say, well, we don't do it that way. We do it this way or we do things that way or we, we've, we've always done it this way. And recognizing that it isn't just simply enough to say, well, you know, the software does it this way, not for you. Uh, we would have mm -hmm. to really understand and learn why did they do it this way? Was it the best way that they could do it? And could we modify that from a business case perspective? And once everyone agreed that, yes, there was a better way for them to work, it was as simple as saying, okay, now the technology just won't allow you to do anything else, but to, to constrain you to that particular path and to get the efficiencies that you need out of it. So it, it was something that I learned again over a couple of years, but uh, it was a fascinating insight to derive. That's great. That's fantastic. And, and what was the, the main outcome that clients were uh, searching with the with the workflow solutions during that time? I, I think they were looking for ways to be more efficient. You know, I think a lot of these larger companies recognized that they were inherently inefficient in a lot of their processes, paperwork, pieces of paper being transferred. You know, I remember one company had a little army of people that just carried around paper from comp from division to division in order to facilitate, you know, different operations. And and I think inherently they just knew that was not a good idea. And it seemed kind of old fashioned in the world of computers, you know, that we should be using technology better. So I think that there was just this desire to get on board. Uh, some companies did it much better than others. Some companies just couldn't quite figure, they knew they needed to do it. They just couldn't figure out how it should all work together and why and get the people on board. Um, so there was a variety of different 
different culture issues that sort of came into play as well. But it was it was uh, an interesting time to be involved in the, in that business. Of course, of course, and 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 helping these businesses strive for operational excellence. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. And what what are your views today on on the the merging of of data and workflow and how do you see uh, what role do you see data and workflow well you know what's interesting is a lot of the a lot of the same issues continue to to exist today but it's it's augmented by new problems that have popped up so you have the same def, the same issues of definitions you know what does this actually mean or what does that actually mean or or i don't understand how this component actually fits together. But I think that it has been uh, augmented, these problems, by the fact that now you can have your hands on so much information. So, you know, if you think about, you know, what what really do I do? Or what does really a data scientist or an analytics person supposed to do? Fundamentally, our job is to make sense of all the mess out there. We are supposed to look at all of that data and somehow be able to tell someone, look, what you need to know is this, and this is what's going to help you improve your ROI, or this is what's going to help you improve your business, or this is what's going to help you make a smarter decision. That's my job. My job is basically to be an interpreter, is to be able to look at all those numbers and be able to make some sense out of it. And I think what's happened in a lot of cases is you people have thrust way too much of that information into people that don't quite have that skill set. And they sit there and they suffer from, you know, that colloquial term of paralysis by analysis. Too many pieces of information. Oh, you know what? Let's look at it this way. Or, you know, what about if we saw all the people who did this on Thursdays when there was a full moon outside? Look, that's all nonsense. And you're (laughs) going to end up slicing the data 60,000 different ways. You're going to end up applying all kinds of fancy mathematical procedures. In the end, you've all you've done is confuse the end person. So there is almost too much data now flowing around and there's not enough of of people who can just make sense of all of the nonsense and be able to clean it up into something that's actionable, something that's meaningful, something that they can then take and and make their business a better place. Why do you think it's so it's so difficult to do or like what do you see as the challenges in in providing an insight that is that is actionable, I guess is the the cliche word. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting thing is you, you sort of look upon the how this how the world of data science has evolved and how the world of analytics and I sort of put them all into the same umbrella because it's all kind of making sense out of numbers, which is really where I come from. And I, I think that I think two major things have happened. Number one is I, it feels to me that, you know, people started to realize around the world, oh, look at all this data. There's got to be some value in it. And then you have a lot of schools all over the country and all over the world that are pumping out freshly minted data people. You know, oh, look at this. We're going to have a create a program in data science or we're going to create a program in analytics. You know, we're going to create a program in this. And all these kids start graduating with this degree. And I think that they are fundamentally missing the instruction of very key ideas. So what they're doing is they're teaching you grammar. They're teaching you spelling, but they don't teach you how to write a story. And that's where it is. And I think where we lack is this concept of apprenticeship. So I can take someone who has learned Python. I can take someone who has learned SQL, but chances are they don't know how to tell a story. So they might look at the data and they go, well, the number six. And I say to them, does that make any sense to you? Well, I don't know. I don't understand this business very well yet. Okay. 
Well, let's think about it. If it's a, if you're telling me it's a six and we both now come to the agreement it should be a six, what what should it ought to be? Well, I don't know. Okay, but should it be a seven? Okay. Well, what are the steps we could do to get it to a seven? Well, I don't know. So I think that's where we've left off. We've got brilliant people out there who can tell you the answer is six, but they can't give you the story behind it. They can't tell you where you ought to be. They can't tell you the steps that you need to get there. And I think that just adds to the confusion around here is because you end up having uh, business owners hiring lots of great people with the term data analysts who've got tremendous skill sets in technology and mathematics, but don't understand yet how to translate all of that information and how to build a narrative around it and how to make it meaningful to people. And I think that's really a fundamental flaw right now in the way we produce, if you will, data science and analytics people out of schools. Could not agree more. <laughs> that is uh, that is fantastic. And I love that you use the word apprenticeship in order to prepare these new grads or new people coming into the industry to get to that next level. What are some elements that you that you would put into a, an apprenticeship for for people, I guess, early you know, in their career? You know, in that, and that's interesting. I have built a very interesting department where I work now in that most of the people that work for me never came from an analytics or a data science background. I got them from all over. I have people who came from English. I have people who came from Asian studies. I have people who came from computer science, but I have also mm -hmm. people that came from engineering and sciences and economics and psychology. So they come from various different backgrounds. And my belief is I can teach them the grammar. I can teach you Python. I can teach you SQL. I can teach you relational database structure. But what I can't teach is how to ask the question why and how to use your intuition. So what I look for is I look for people that have this sort of burning desire to understand why something is happening and to propel them in order to figure solutions out. And this understanding of how to apply an intuition filter among everything that they do. Does what I just did make sense? Does what I'm understanding or what I'm about to produce for you have value to it? Does it have merit? And I train those people with the grammar, but they're very, it's very hard to train people in reverse. You can't train a people to, to, to know how to apply their intuition. And then I spend a lot of time teaching them about business. How does business work? How does the world that we live in that we're supposed to be helping to advise work? It's very hard to be able to advise people if you don't understand what it is they do. So we spend a lot of time exploring and analyzing and understanding why people do the actions they do in the various different businesses. Why does that person have to send that email to this other person at eight o'clock every morning? Well, there's a business requirement for that. And we try to understand the business from the inside out such that everything we do is then filtered through that experience. Incredible. And how does the team take or has taken to to that approach? Um, they find it fascinating. I think it's an opportunity for them that they've never been exposed to. They really, really enjoy learning about it. I mean, these are people I think that I hunt down who just have a desire to want to learn and it helps them to just be able to explore those things. We, we spend a lot of time talking about stuff. We look at the different functional units in the company and how they interact and how they're supposed to interact, where they're doing things really well and maybe where they aren't doing really things very well. And how can we help and how can we be proactive about the data that we have? Uh, because we can't always rely on people to ask us the question. A lot of the time we have to be proactive because we're the ones in the data all day long. We're the ones who notice the trend and we say, hey, that's interesting, but yeah, nobody ever asked me about that. So I'm moving on to the next one. It's not an answer. We have to be able to yeah. say, OK, let's take some time and explore that on our own and have the flexibility and the interest to be able to want to learn about how things that aren't requested of us could eventually impact the business or, or the operations in positive ways. Exactly. That 
that's that's fantastic. And one thing that you've that you've mentioned a couple of times as a, as a problem that you saw when you were starting out in your career was around the data definitions. Mm-hmm. And this is a problem where you know, for me, for example, early in my career I was working mostly with small businesses and uh, the data definition wasn't really a big problem because it was small and I didn't expect it to be a problem when I went into large businesses. But it's a it's a huge, it's a huge yeah. problem. So how, how did you go about uh, solving that problem and what type of things did you see? Well, I wish I could say I solved it. <laughs> I, think we muddled through. I think we muddled through it. Look, you know, definitions, you know, I think you have to understand what the motivation are behind the definitions. And, and and I don't think it's very deep other than definitions are constructed in ways to make people look good. You know, if I am responsible for the number of X that I produce every month, I'm going to want to define my production term in the best possible light. But that doesn't always work for the business. So that's one side of it, is trying to figure that out. The other side is where definitions are constructed for historical reasons and just don't make any sense anymore. And in order to be successful at that, requires buy-in from the most senior people in the company. It requires floating those definitions. Look, I mean, this is one of my favorite things to thought, think about, but data is really like a flashlight it, that illuminates dark corners and rooms. And when you start exposing those for what they really are, you're inevitably going to annoy people and you're going to frustrate people who have been operating as in a different construct where they've been doing fantastic for the last six quarters. And then you say, well, not really, because if you really think about what you've really done, it doesn't look so good. So it is very much a complex negotiation where you start to derive valuable definitions for the company so that metrics can be judged fairly and, you know, which will allow growth to be judged fairly, which will allow success to be judged fairly, which will allow failure to be judged uh, fairly. And it does require some significant buy-in from, from senior leadership, which is not difficult to get once you phrase it in that context that you know we have here to make the company succeed. And the only way to make the company succeed is to judge it fairly and honestly. And then people get, yeah, okay, I, I understand that. And let's go ahead and let's propose some changes. And a lot of the time we allow the metrics to run in parallel for a little while so people can understand. And then over time you phase out the old ones and you replace them with the proper definitions that are then consistent across. That's a really great way to do it, actually, to give people that, that transition time. Exactly. And it sounds and it sounds like you focus on getting uh, buy-in from from the top in terms of providing new definitions and, and upgrading or, up, or changing any metrics that the business might run on. And... And how do you go with the with the problem of of adoption and and changing the the culture really? Because if the metrics were one way, and then we're saying we're going to increase transparency and and put the the you know light in the in these corners, mm-hmm. how do you go with the pushback? Well, you know that's a diff- that's a tricky thing. So you know part of my role as the as the senior data guy is I spend a lot of time evangelizing the use of data in decision making process and convincing people that data in general beyond just definitions but data in general as a important and key driver of decision making around the company is a very long and arduous process. You know, I've worked in companies where the CEO has freely admitted that he prefers to fly by the seat of his pants. 
you know, and that really doesn't inspire a data guy, you know, and I go, oh, okay, I'll sit, here, oh, yeah. I'll sit here in my corner. Thank you. No, but it, it is a complex uh, process. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to currently work in a company that values the use of data, but it still has to be evangelized and has to be pushed as a important factor in decision making. So when you're talking about adjusting definitions, increasing transparency, and in essence, increasing accountability, which is really what you're doing at the bottom of it, at the end of it all, is, is a very long process, but phrased in the context of uh, how it can improve the business and how it's going to lead to better financial results, how it's going to lead to better operational results, and how it has a very valuable ROI. If you can put everything in terms of concrete, sort of businessy sort of definitions, there is a tremendous amount of opportunity that is then awarded to that person to be able to try to make some changes for the better. If you just were to walk in and say, hey, look, I think this definition stinks and we're going to change it to this. Cool with that. I mean, obviously, that wouldn't be as a successful strategy. But coming in and saying, hey, look, I think that there, this is being mismeasured for these reasons. If we adjust the measurement to this, this is the data that then falls out of it. And that allows us to see these areas of opportunity, which will then link to greater you know, earnings on, on this particular product line. Uh, that's a much more comprehensive argument, which tends to work mm. quite well, I found in my experience. There was a, a, an element implicit there, where, which I want to ask you more about it explicitly, where in in changing people's minds around what, what the metrics could be and how to increase transparency, there was an element there of maybe, and, and you told me, maybe meeting people at the stage of data maturity that they're at, and then uh, guiding them towards higher levels of maturity in, in data. And well, first I'll ask you about that. It, how do you see that? I guess the problem in general is what to work on at at different stages, how how do you um, how do you do that in you know in a company? Yeah, you, you've hit upon a very interesting issue. You know, is there's there's levels within a company that are comfortable with data at a certain point. They are used. It is used in whatever context that they need it to be in. And you know, say it's at X and you want to elevate them to why you know there's really a need in, in my belief and 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 what are the steps that you you use to bring the company forward i i think the first steps that i've done historically is to start deploying broad-ranging basic data to the entire organization increase what i would call the foundational layer of transparency you know mm -hmm. it is always surprising to me in companies that i've been in where people are just not familiar with the fundamental pieces of information how much money did we earn last year how much revenue did we derive from these different sources these are very very basic components so what i like to do is i like to build incrementally sort of how you would build a house you start off with a very solid foundation of data. And I think the most important component of all of this is that you have to have this data be solid. Because if there's any sort of holes, if anyone can poke a you know, hole in anything that you've done, your integrity is right out the window. And then you got to start all over again. And it takes a long time to rebuild that. So you have to be very cautious and slow moving in the initial stages to really build a strong foundational layer that is defensible and that can't be picked apart. And people start to trust that data. They start to trust that they can go to that system and they know anything that comes out of that system is going to be good data. And then over time, 
start to layer in additional pieces of information. Always cognizant that we don't want to overwhelm people with too much data, but we start to layer in additional data and allow them the ability to then interact with the data in, in ways. So, you know, there's a lot of dashboarding tools out there. and There's a lot of different uh, companies that make interactive data tools these days. And, you know, you can pick whichever one works best for your firm. And, you know, we've done that exercise in a couple of different places I've been in. And we allow then people to be able to click with it. Okay, you know, I want to now know some basic ideas. How do I set segment this data, basically? How do I take a look at male-female and buying habits? How do I take a look at that? And you provide them with the ability to uh, interact with their data in a very controlled environment. And then slowly over time, you continue to add more and more and more as the maturity level develops to where, you know, you don't have people freaking out one day and popping champagne the next day because there's a blip in the data. You know, that's one of the hardest things to manage through. It's like, oh my God, why is this happening? You're like, whoa, 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 you know, wait a minute. Let's take a look. So as you build that maturity within the organization, that comfort, that familiarity with data, then you can start to layer things on. It is a slow process, and I think it depends the speed of which you can progress at the level of the company that you're coming in at, what stage they're in, in in that. I mean, some companies are very advanced and they're very willing to accept this kind of stuff. Some companies are in the dark ages relatively, and you have to go much slower. So it really depends a lot on the, the corporate culture and how you're going to be able to do it. But, you know, step-by-step iterative processes allow them to interact with it is the way that I've approached it. That's great. And what I love about that approach is that you have a, a focus on, on the strategic view or the strategic programs of work that are foundational and that will give you dividends. It'll pay dividends for, for years to come. And exactly. how, how, do you balance, how do you balance that approach with, with the, the typical pressure that people want, you know, the quick win and, and something flashy and they're always looking what they, in their mind, they think of a, of a short term win how do you balance that with the with the long strategic projects that's a tough one i mean the, the easy wins there's no easy wins and i and i think that's i think that's the the truth about it you know i i have yes. people that you know regardless of where i've been you know look i need to see this data point on a week to week basis uh, okay I need to see this daily. And my question always back to them is, what exactly are you going to do on a day-to-day basis with this piece of knowledge? What could you possibly affect? If you, you know, if, if something dips, what button are you going to push? What lever are you going to pull that's going to change the business in the next 24 hours before the next button, the next piece of data comes in? And if they say, well, there's nothing I can really do, I can say, well, then let's not panic every night. Let's not go to bed <laughs> thinking that the business is not going to be there in the morning, or let's not go to bed with champagne in our hands because we just did great. Let us take a look at a more macro level. Let's look at it on a longer term. So usually when I phrase it in that context, now, obviously there are some things that seem to, if you're looking at basic web metrics or things like that, oh, okay, maybe we need to add another server and we can do that relatively quickly. But when it comes to business decisions, I don't think any business should be run within a 24-hour decision-making cycle. Things need to be more thought out. And this is one of the things that I lecture my, my team is you have to let things marinate for a little while. You know, you've got to let things develop and you've got to let data come in over time to make sure that we're really thinking about it in the right way. So I really push back hard a lot of the time on folks that tell me that they need quick wins, they need quick information, they need information in order to do X. Because my question always is, well, what would you do with it? What button are you possibly going to press that's going to change the makeup of the business by tomorrow? based upon the data that I gave you today? And the answer is always, there is nothing. There's nothing I'm going to do about it. So then let's take a much more mature and logical and relaxed approach to this. And I guarantee you things will work out okay as long as the 
fundamental business decisions that you made in the beginning were sound. It sounds like you're taking people on a journey by educating them in in terms of, I guess, data literacy and and how to build good metrics and and focusing on on things that are actual actually uh, actionable from a business decision standpoint. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. No, I I agree 100% with that. Yeah. That's what we really try to do. Ah, that's that's great. That's great. And so just just going back to to your background and your career, you said that you that you worked in in consulting, and that then uh, I don't know if it was straight after, uh, but then you started a company as well. Was there anything in between? No, I I left the consulting firm and I started my own company right away. I was 24 years old, <laughs> which in retrospect may have been quite too young, but yeah, I did it. <laughs> you know what? I did it. I did exactly the same thing. I at at about the same time. I think I was 25 and started a consulting company. This is great. I would ask you uh, a lot about that. What was the idea behind the company and what was your, your focus at the time? Well, you know, okay, so, you know, you know, take your time machine and go back to 1999 when I started this. So what I, you know, this was the, the, the dot-com era. Now, we weren't really a dot-com company. We were a software company, but we kind of got caught up in the whole dot-com craze. And, you know, we, we rose and fell with it unfortunately. But what we were all about was, in essence, was a type of managing data. It came to my attention that there were tons and tons of companies that had video assets. The companies were, for whatever reason, had tons and tons of data that was just video data. So they had video tapes, they had dat tapes, they had beta tapes, and they had storerooms, stock rooms full of these things. And I said, well, why don't we put those into a digital format so you could have a easy access to them all over the company? We, you know, a digital asset management system. So we created a digital asset management system. But then leveraging my consulting knowledge and my workflow knowledge, I said, ah, wouldn't it be cool if I create interactive video workflow technology? So, okay, you still got your hat on. This is 1999. So we were very much on the cutting edge. So what we created was a workflow solution for video. So the idea was that I could, in my queue, pull up a video from the dam, you know, and, and take a look at it. And then I could get to various different points in the video stop the video, draw on the video and say, hey, look, you know, we've got an issue here. Create at that time what we call the video bookmark and then share that in a workflow environment with other people. So, for example, if you are doing commercial production at an ad agency and you wanted to say, hey, look, something's not right here. We have the can of Coke upside down and draw a circle around it and then share that video, that bookmark with everybody else. So by clicking on that bookmark, it would automatically pull up the video from the database and go right to that time code. And people could see the drawing that you pulled on the video where you circled things or, or pointed to it. And you could share that um, you could share that within a, in a workflow environment. And uh, we deployed that in in, 19, the, in the beginning half of the year 2000. And um, we were marketing it to a variety of different verticals. We found uh, sports teams were interested in it because uh, mm. at that time, there was a solution called Avid Sports that did a lot of this, but it cost a million dollars in installation. So, you know, if you were women's volleyball, you could not afford a million dollar program that maybe the football team could. We also found ad agencies and and we found a couple other verticals that were were interested in it. The challenge that we had outside of the athletic world was that we were horizontally integrating data across very vertically structured organizations. And it mm. was tough. You know, people were like, well, I don't want him to see what I'm doing. I don't see the need for this. So what we ran into was obviously there was a need from an outsider, 
but the insiders didn't quite feel that they were ready to share data back and forth. And that really was a shock to me because I was still pretty young and I was still pretty naive in a lot of the ways the world works. And I hadn't realized how people were political in large organizations and protected their jobs by protecting their data. And that was shocking to me. I was like, but I can, I don't understand. You'll improve your business. Well, okay. But you know, my job is then at greater risk because somebody else can kind of do what I do. And you know, no one ever said that explicitly, but you know, you learn those lessons as you're going along. You're like, Oh my God, I built a solution for nobody who wants it. <laughs> you know, So uh, mm-hmm. we, we had a tough time. I think we could have eventually cracked that nut. Uh, but you know, with the dot-com bubble imploding and, you know, venture funds drying up, even though we didn't sort of fit into the dot-com, uh, you know, uh, definition, we were sort of an unfortunate side effect of all of that. And we were unable to, to keep it together, but it was a fascinating technology really, really well ahead of its time. Very, very ahead of its time. That is, that's impressive. That, that is amazing. <laughs> I wish, it, I wish it had been more successful. <laughs> well, I, I, of course, of course, I understand. But the the work that you guys were doing was was fantastic. So during during the time of your startup, I want to ask you about the lessons learned. Uh, obviously, <laughs> there was. <laughs> And, and in a startup, there's <laughs> there's always lots because uh, it's all it's all new, right? Um, right. So what uh, what did you learn during that time? Well, I learned a lot of good things and I learned a lot of bad things. The the, the thing I learned is I don't like failing very much, and you know obviously that was not the, the biggest success of my of my professional life, and it, it was tough. And I learned that I needed to be able to put failure behind me in a better way than I had previously done it. You know, I would brood over it. I would obsess over it. I would think about all the different things I could have done. And then I realized at some point that I wasn't thinking about the future anymore. I was thinking about everything that happened in the past. And, you know, there's lots of people who write self-help books on that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I don't think what I learned was anything revolutionary, but it was important for me to learn that lesson at that time. I think I learned how to manage people really, really well. And that was something that I take with me today. You know, we at that time, you know, it was very hard to keep engineers in a company. Turnover in the dot-com world was amazing. And we held on to every single person we ever hired. We had nobody who ever quit on us except for, you know, a couple of ancillary positions, non-technical kind of things. And I learned really well how to manage people. And it wasn't very hard. I mean, the, the lessons that I took away from it were very, very straightforward. But I'm always impressed by the number of people who don't understand those lessons. And they were basically lessons like always be honest, always be kind. You know, things like that are like, oh, of course, always be honest, always be kind. But you'd be surprised at how many people don't know how to apply those lessons. Don't yell at people. Criticize privately. You know, you compliment publicly. Don't mm. go after somebody on the telephone. You do that in person. You know, yes. and, and, and things like that are are fundamental and basic, but very, very valuable. And I was able to learn those things and those have significantly helped me in my career. And I'm always shocked about, you know, being on, you know, conference calls where, you know, someone is rude or someone is aggressively or someone is very critical. You know, those are things that you say for private conversations. And and I always like to put everything in the context of being kind. Look, you know, nobody goes out of their way to do a bad job. Sometimes it happens, though. But I don't think anyone wakes up this morning and goes, you know what? I feel like I'm going to do a rotten job today. Mm -hmm. Everyone has bad days. Everyone has things that don't work out. So if you approach things from the context that no one acts out of malice, but sometimes Mm -hmm. they act out of the things that annoy you or come from periods of stupidity or oversight, it really reframes your whole argument. You know, if you really don't think, well, that person did it to me, you know, but that person was just having a bad day and, you know, I'm going to talk to them and we're going to get things through it. You know, it really makes it for a much better conversation and, and it really helps you to manage those people. 
you know, and I think the other things I, I, I learned out of it was, was, and I think I, and I alluded to before was how difficult it is to understand how large companies work when you're young, because you, yes. you really aren't, at least I was not exposed to that or political structure and how politics plays an incredible role in decision making, even when faced with a good decision. Now, I like to think back and pretend that, you know, ours was obviously a great decision and they should have gone with it. But, you know, the reality was that there was a very strong vested interests in not sharing data. And even though the company as a whole, the entity would have benefited, the individuals may not have benefited. And it really taught me a lot about understanding human nature and how to approach problems when there are political organizations or political factors to be uh, to be kept in in, in uh, consideration when you when dealing with large companies, even with some small companies as well too. That's right. That's so true. And I I love I love all those those lessons that that you were just sharing. I made I made so many mistakes on all of those areas. <laughs> um, so many. For example, like in in so I had a, a I started a, a small consulting company as well, and we lost one of our major clients because I couldn't read the politics inside the large corporation. So we were working for a very senior IT manager and he had said that, I didn't know this, but he had said that a particular piece of work would be done late in the year, uh, in the next year. And the people from the business, including one of the executives, they asked me how long it would take and when it could be done. And I sort of said, oh, that's not too hard. As a problem, it wasn't too hard to do in isolation. I said, that's not too hard. We could probably do it in a couple of months. And then that was completely... Mm-hmm antagonizing his roadmap, his plan, and the fact that, you know, for any reasons, he wanted to do that piece of work later on. I completely misread the politics. And and as a result, we lost like one of the major clients that we had. I made huge mistakes on on that side and on the managing, managing people side as well during my time on the startup. And then much, much like you, just definitely spent the time where I was obsessing over the failures. And and then that reflection did help me become, become a better manager. I love the way your approach seems to be very compassionate and very team focused. And I wanted to ask you, uh, did you develop that during your time in the startup, before, after, and how, how did that approach come about? I, I think it's it's a... You know, it was a realization that, you know, and, and I what well, to quote Popeye, I am what I am. You know, uh, this is who I am. I, I, I can't, I can't put on the suit and be the shark. I'm not going to be a tough businessman. I'm not going to rip somebody apart. I leave that to somebody else. Th- this is, this is what I am. I am a teacher. I like to help people. I like to be, you know, I, I don't, I can't be rude. I'm sort of polite to a fault in a lot of ways. But this is what I am. And so I leveraged those skills, you know, and I was hopeful and it worked out that these are skills that I could develop into being successful at managing people. Now, not to say that sometimes I felt that maybe some people were taking advantage of that. I have learned since then that I need to toughen up a little bit when you deal with people who, you know, would take advantage of, you know, someone who is offering them an opportunity. But I have always tried to be true to to the skill sets that I just have internally and, and the things that I like to do. And, you know, I, I hunt for people that will flourish 
under that type of management structure and really focus on hiring those types of people as opposed to other people who perhaps just don't respond well to that. And uh, so far it's worked out okay. So That's fantastic. And what have been some of the benefits in your career from having that approach, uh, being self-aware about it and focusing on your strengths and being authentic in how you are with managing people? What have been some of the benefits uh, in your well, career? I, yeah, I, I think that it has propelled me to be able to be very good at, at managing people in the day space. You know, uh, this is a world now where there is a lot of competition for good talent. And, you know, I can't always pay the best salaries. I'm not going to always be able to drop, you know, enough money on someone that they're going to say, well, yeah, no kidding, I'm going to work here. So I try to make up for that by creating an environment where people have, people feel good about working. Now, you know, I'm not a big, you know, I'm not a big person in, you know, ping pong tables and foosball tables and free soda. I mean, just not, that's also not my style. Like, you know, you know, but I try to create a, a world where they will be intellectually stimulated and intellectually rewarded and and hopefully have a, a good time along the way where it's fun environment to work in, where it's it's collaborative, where they can learn a lot and, and, and where they feel safe to make mistakes uh, and not mm-hmm. be slammed for them. Because a lot of what we do, you know, the science part of that, and this is what I always tell colleagues is, but the science part of what we do is we need to explore. We need to be able to feel free. I mean, there is not a physicist or a chemist or a biologist alive who has not walked down a path for months and say, whoops, uh, it doesn't make any sense. I got to start over again. That's how happens is that's what science is. Science, the scientific method is testing, hypothesizing, testing, hypothesizing. And that's what we have to do. Now, it's at odds a little bit with the corporate environment where they expect results, but we have to foster that ability to be able to make mistakes and to walk down paths for weeks and realize at the end of it, ah, I went the wrong way, I got to start over again and not feel that someone's going to yell at. So I really try to, to create that kind of environment for them so that they can have the, the comfort to be able to explore and to grow and to test things. You know, I, I'm not I'm not under any delusions that this is the last stop on the train for the people who work for me. So part of my job as a manager is also to make sure that I'm always giving them the skill sets and I'm always teaching them and I'm always trying to propel them forward such that when they are ready to make that next leap to a bigger job or to a, a, a more uh, sophisticated role, that they're ready for. It. You know, it, it's not in my interest either to keep people here all the time who do the same, you know, punch the hole every morning. You know, we want people who are growing and, and recognizing that at some point they will be going off onto a different path in their career, but always having people coming in to take their places. So I always try to make sure that I'm aware of their career trajectory and their growth potential and, and help to foster that. That's incredible. And, and what are some of the areas that you help develop your team or that you have in mind when uh, teaching or mentoring or helping them grow? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, because of the particular type of people that I, I hire, a lot of it is the technical skills. You know, not everyone comes in here. You know, very few people that I hire actually know programming. Very few of them know SQL. You know, so we, we work on that. We learn our skills. You know, it takes a couple of months. It's not very hard to do. Uh, we learn relational database structures. I try to expose people across uh, to different tracks so that they can be comfortable with learning all different types of this business. So, you know, in my unit right now, we we oversee what, you know, is the entire what we call the data ecosystem. So we have sort of three tracks, if you will. We have the systems track, which is our data warehousing and our ETL and all of the 
different tools we've got. We have our report writing group, and then we have our data science research and analytics group. And even though we have those three defined roles, no one is assigned to any one of those particular tracks. So everyone has the opportunity to jump across and to work in every of the other different things. So they're always learning. They're always evolving their skill sets. So, you know, and, and it's important to push them. So, you know, I might have someone who's great at doing uh, quantitative research through surveys and saying, okay, you know, why don't we transition a little bit? Let's, I'm going to bring you in on a project where we're going to do some ETL work and you're going to learn how data gets into a warehouse. Um, you know, and that's great. You know, like, okay, I'll be happy to learn that. And we have an, an expert on that, but I'll take that expert sometimes and say, okay, you know, this week I need you to help me out on report writing and I need you to go visit with the business unit and really understand what they want. So they get an opportunity to get out from behind the desk, walk down to the fraud department, walk down to an operations department and be able to say, okay, let's talk about what you really need to know. So it keeps yeah. them always learning and jumping across. So rather than just be tracked, we, we, we allow people to have the flexibility to, to move among all the different components that make up a data organization. Outstanding. I, I love that. That's, that's how you get top talent today, in my, in my opinion, because that's, that's what people want. They want to be growing professionally. I think everyone understands that, that the data space is such a huge field that uh, there's not one person that will know everything, but getting exposed to the whole spectrum in an end-to-end way, such as what you what you do, that that is what what people want and what helps them grow in their career. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. And one one of the one of the things that that happens in our industry because it is so vast and there's so much knowledge is a lot of people feel insecure about their knowledge and, and what they can contribute. And there's there's definitely an aspect of of an imposter syndrome where oh, people yeah. feel, uh, am I a data scientist? Can I call myself a data scientist if I don't know about data warehousing or ETL, am I still okay, etc. Or if I don't know the, the latest model or whatever. What uh, what is your view on on the imposter syndrome in our in our industry? Well, you know, it's interesting, and I think so. A couple of years ago, and I actually wrote an article about this. A couple of years ago, there was this chart that made its way around the internet. You may have seen it, and it looks like a subway map. And some very entrepreneuring person listed like 7,000 things that you need to do and know in order to be a data scientist. And I, you know, I'm not bad at this. And I looked at it, I go, holy crap, I know about half, maybe two thirds at best. And I think I'm pretty good at what I do. And talk about creating an inferiority complex. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. there's no one that can know this amount of knowledge. And if somebody does, God bless them, because that's amazing. You know, and I like to think that everyone that I can find or that everyone can contribute something. Now, look, data science is kind of a wishy-washy term. I mean, it's the, the, the latest in vogue description for for what we do. Again, you know, like you mentioned at the top of the, of, of the discussion, our job is to make sense of information. We're supposed to look at all the different data and we're supposed to try to create some type of, you know, sense of, of value out of it. If that is what we want to call a data scientist, if that's what we call an analytics person, look, you know, we can call them whatever we want, but fundamentally that's, that's our job. And I think lots and lots of people should feel good about what they can do uh, without having to worry about whether or not they have this data science title on them. Um, and I know that there's a lot of people who are really good about it, trying to keep a, sort of an exclusionary up and say, well, you know, you really can't call yourself a data scientist because I really am one and you're really not one. And, and I don't believe in barriers like that. 
I, I think that that's I think that's typical of human nature to want to throw up exclusive clubs and areas where you're not allowed in because you don't have the qualifications. You know, I, I just don't believe in that strategy. And I would encourage people to not slap the data scientist label always on themselves because what you inevitably do is you open yourself up to recruiters and managers who Google data scientists and come up with the hundred questions that a data scientist should know. And they ask them those questions and then you don't know the answer. And then they say, well, you're not a data scientist. You're not getting this job. And you're like, well, uh, you know, so don't label yourself other than anything you actually are, but make the case for why you can do the job. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a much better strategy for people who feel like they want, they can do this stuff, but they haven't learned all of the 70,000 skills that have been listed on the subway roadmap there, which by the way, I still think is incomplete in terms of lots of other soft skills that people really ought to have. Yes. But, but, um, uh, yeah, I would encourage people not to feel intimidated. There are a self-imposed exclusion on what people can and can't do. And I believe everyone has the opportunity to contribute if given the right environment and encouraging atmosphere to explore. As long as you have the right way of thinking and looking at problems, and then you can be trained up and you can learn and you can adjust and, and, and be successful in this world, in this particular data science world is what I mean. Yes, yes, 100%. That's, that's great. I wanted to go back a little bit when we were talking about politics and I wanted uh, politics in large corporations mm-hmm. and uh, we both mentioned you and I that that it had been a problem for us in the past I wanted to to ask you what are your your current views on on politics in large corporations and how do you navigate the, the corporate politics today I got the best training of my life from one of my bosses in politics. So I had the opportunity when I worked for a large educational institution, higher ed, to work for a very senior person in the Clinton administration. And she taught me how to work politics. I I would not call myself an expert, but man, I am light years from where I used to be. And she taught me things I never, she taught me a level of awareness that I didn't even know existed. She taught me how to read an email from like 15 different perspectives. And what does the word actually could mean to somebody else when all I'm trying to say is X, can 13 other people interpret it Y, which is going to put me into a weird position or to read things from from different levels. And it was the most and I didn't recognize it at the time, but thankfully I have recognized it after the time. And and it has been one of the best educational things I have ever learned in my career because politics just won't ever go away. It's been around since the beginning of time and it'll be around long after I am dead. So the only thing you can do is get good at it. So my advice to people who are dealing with it is figure it out, learn it, get good at it because you're going to have to deal with it no matter what happens. And you'll find yourself in a much better role if you just accept it like that. You know, if you want to be a crusader against a you know, corporate politics, you're going to make yourself miserable. Rest of it. It's just a fact. And if you accept it, move on and learn how to deal with it, you will be much better. So I owe that particular person a huge debt because I am, I would not call myself a judo master yet, but I am really pretty good at where I, considering where I was when I started in dealing with large corporate politics and how to structure and to position myself such that I know how to uh, move projects along, how to not get into conflict when I don't necessarily need to be, and how to uh, how to get things done when normally you would have a difficult time getting projects to be uh, to be handled like that. 
I would say that for anybody who, who is dealing with corporate politics, you've got to learn it. You have really just got to figure it out because it's never going to go away. It's always going to be there. And I, and as I was saying, I owe this person, this boss, a huge debt of gratitude because she taught me how to move a project along. She taught me how to avoid unnecessary conflict by just being more careful about how I wrote and how the word phrasing I chose could be interpreted one way versus another. Um, it was an extraordinary boot camp. And I am so grateful at this point in my life for having been through what that time I thought was silly, but now recognizing that it was the most invaluable thing I'd ever, I'd ever learned. Definitely. And, and what were some, some of the key tips that, that helped you uh, move along or, or the main things that you took away in terms of things that you might do on a day to day or week to week basis? She taught me what I like to call three-dimensional thinking. So three-dimensional uh-huh. thinking, you know, look, two-dimensional thinking is I would write you an email and say, hey, I need this from you. And you would write back and say, okay, and I'll give this to you. Okay, in, in exchange. Three-dimensional thinking is I write to you knowing that I need this from you, but your motivation for perhaps not giving it to me would be this, but I can circumvent that lack of motivation by phrasing something in this way because you need something from a third person. And that's what I call three-dimensional thinking is understanding you and your motivations and how to get around what you normally would do, which would just say no to me so that I can get you to do what I need you to do. And that is three-dimensional thinking. Three-dimensional thinking is how do I write an email to you so that you don't look at going, oh my God, this guy is a jerk. I'm not dealing with him because I used a funny word or I used an awkward phrase of sentence or I didn't understand something about the way in which you you read emails or something that happened to you. So uh, it was a wonderful opportunity in, in just in just thinking about this three-dimensional thinking that has gotten me to be much more successful. How to how to head off a potential problem by involving other people that you know are eventually going to be contacted by this. So if I know that if I ask you for this, you're going to turn around and say to person B, can you believe David just did this to me? So my my attempt will be to contact person B first, get him on board with my idea, so that when I contact you and you go and yell at person B, person B is like, no, yeah, we already spoke about this, and this is, I think, a great idea, and please do it. And you're like, oh, that's boxed out. So that is corporate judo. And that is what I learned from her. And I, I am so grateful for that knowledge. That is incredible. And how, how was it that you were you were working in higher ed at the time? Is that right? And how, how did yeah. you end up working with somebody from the Clinton administration? Earlier? Well, you know, higher ed tends to be the, uh, tends to be the, the refuge for uh, political parties that are not in power. So, you know, they tend to go teach. They tend to take uh, senior level administrative positions. So at that time, uh, the second George Bush was president. So the Clinton administration had come out of office. They were looking for places to go. A lot of them ended up in higher ed, which is typically sort of where they go to hide out while the opposite party is in power. And then when it flips, they leave and they go back. So that makes sense. And towards the start, you mentioned that you had worked for a non-for-profit. Is this the same as higher ed or different? Yes, it was a non-for-profit higher education. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. And what what did you? Well, this was a the obviously managing politics was a huge learning <laughs> for you during that time. What what else did you take away from from that time? I think, and honestly, this is the point in my career where data really sort of jump started from me. So mm-hmm. it was an opportunity to work for an enormous institution. Now we're talking, you know, sixteen thousand employees. We're talking seventy five thousand students. It's a very big higher education institution, and they were not very good with data. They made a lot of decisions. Now it's got a tremendous budget. I mean, we're talking over $2 billion spent a year on running the the university. And they were not data centric. And I had a boss who recognized that there was a need to make better 
data-driven decisions. And I was given the opportunity to really start to build for the first time ever in this organization a advanced analytics practice. And I was able to think about how do I recruit people that can best make advanced analytics work? How do I deploy a department in an organization that has never had one before? How do I evangelize the use of data? And, and so it was a wonderful opportunity for me to learn all of those different skills in an organization that allowed me to do that with relative safety. Uh, one of the things about higher ed and then sort of the unspoken truth is it's very hard to, uh, you know, there's a lot of flexibility given to people just by the nature of it. You know, there's not a whole lot of worry about quarters and end of years. You know, students come back to school every semester. You know, it's a lot more I would say less emphasis on quarterly numbers than in a sort of a corporate organization. So there is more flexibility to be able to explore and to be able to develop um, uh, new departments and ideas uh, incubated within this organization. And I was given that opportunity and I think we really built a pretty cool department out of it. And it sounds like that was the first maybe large scale time that, that you, it sounds like you built a, a data strategy for the organization or at least a data science strategy. And how how would you go about or how do you go about building a, a data strategy today and, and what are some of the elements that you that you look for when you're putting it together? Yeah, you know, and I learned a lot also from that place that I have also sought not to replicate. And I think that's one of the major things, sort of answer your question, is that we talked earlier about owning the data ecosystem, owning all the components that make data. And in that organization, the IT organization was very involved with data. And I think that was the perfect example of a group that should not be involved with data. They look at data from a very operational perspective, mm. as opposed to data from a very insight-driven perspective. And the two are at odds. Uh, and so when you have the IT organization building a data warehouse, it doesn't really always work. When you have the IT organization building uh, processes related to data, they're of a different way than I think that they need to be approached to be successful. So when I go now into a new organization, one of the things that I like to make sure is that I have the ability to, if not own the entire process, to have strong influence over it. And, and in the current company, when I first joined, I was not in charge of the data warehouse. And that was one of the first changes that I made is that I needed to be not only the business owner of the warehouse, but I needed to be the technical owner of the warehouse. I needed to own the ETL. I needed to own the warehouse. I needed to own the visualization tools along with all the analysts because my analysts and my the people working for me who are looking at the data all day long say, hey, I need to look at data in this particular way. And I need that to be built into the warehouse because it makes things a lot easier. And that's hard to get onto an IT development schedule. Like, yeah, I want to shift around these these columns. Why? Because I, I want to. Okay, well, we'll get to that in the fourth quarter of 2019. You know, like, no, 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 it just has to happen now. So the fact that I can control it makes things a lot easier and gives me a lot more, you know, to use an overused word, agility in being able to adjust how in which we interact with the data so that it is more efficient for us to be able to, to pull insights out. So when I go to build a department, I really do look for the ability to control that whole thing. The other thing that, and one of the things we haven't talked about yet, is that I believe very much in a centralized function. 
I think that analytics, data science needs to be a centralized unit within a company. And I think we saw this with IT back in the 90s. Remember, you and I probably remember there was always the IT guy in every department. It was an embedded, basically, help desk guy in every department who did everything from networking to figuring out why the printer didn't work to helping with your email to your Microsoft Word. And eventually, companies realized that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have 55 guys scattered across the company when we can get away with 20 guys in a centralized unit. And eventually, you know, we saw the rise of integration with application development, database management, and we have a CTO or CIO that manages this vertical. Makes perfect sense. We need to move away from embedded analysts within departments or embedded data scientists within departments and companies and move to a centralized structure. And we've built here, where I work now in financial services in this company, I've built a centralized structure. There are no embedded analysts. Now, we have created self-service business intelligence tools to provide information to people in order to make decisions. But as a whole, the complex work is all centralized within my group, which allows me to be able to deploy incredibly knowledgeable people across multiple different problems that maybe business owners might not see are actually interconnected. So we get that we get that efficiency immediately. Um, I can do it with less people and I can do it in ways that are more interesting. I can deploy uh, machine learning people to work on multiple problems simultaneously as opposed to having a machine learning person sitting in the in the advertising department who's only building ad learning modules. Okay, and, and, that's, and that I think allows my people to be able to have the flexibility to explore and expand their brains to be able to think about things holistically and it allows the company to get better value out of it. So again, that's the other thing that I really look for when I'm building an organization. Do I have the flexibility to build centralized structure? And the last is, do I have an executive team that believes in the use of what I'm doing? Because I really don't want to work for an organization that has me there because it looks good on paper but really doesn't want to listen to what I have to say. Not to say that they have to mm -hmm. do what I do, but it's helpful if they would actually entertain the ideas. So I look for an executive team that believes in the use of data, that believes that it can be, have value to it, and it believes that it should have a seat at, at the decision-making uh, table. What you said about centralizing the team, I completely agree. I think it's so I, I completely agree, but I before before I go on a ramble about it, um, I want to, <laughs> I want to ask you what what degree of centralization do you usually go for, and and why is that versus having uh, even a slightly decentralized? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. I think it depends on some level of the size of the organization. So you know, the company that I work for that we've done this successfully in is you know we have about fifteen hundred employees. So yeah, I would say it's more of a medium sized company, and it and it has worked quite well for us because I've been able to enforce standards, enforce definitions, but enforce, I think, fundamentally the quality of work. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, if, if your data, whatever it is that you're working on, if someone can poke holes in it, because remember, data is like a flashlight. Some people are not going to like what you have to say. If someone excuse me, if someone can poke holes in the data, you're, you're gone. You have no opportunity to represent. Your, your integrity is pretty much shot. So you want to be able to make sure that the junior level people are able to, oops, sorry. Okay. <laughs> you want to make sure that the junior level people are able to write clearly. You want to make sure that they're able to explain the ideas clearly. You want to make sure that their logic is clear and precise and correct. So you're able to really sort of have a, a level of quality assurance in the work that you don't get in a fully decentralized model. Now, in a larger organization, I could see where a centralized model could break down, where you have units needing information faster than a centralized unit is able to provide. And we see this now with IT organizations where 
you know, hey, I need to have these changes made to the application. And it goes through a, a scheduling cycle and it's put in for, you know, Q1 of 2019. You're like, well, I don't can't wait six months, you know, and then it becomes the struggle of how do we accelerate the timeline. In a centralized analytics unit, when people ask you, well, I need you to please do some research or I need you to help us solve this problem uh, and you get multiple people buying into it, you're going to have a difficult time always scheduling the work quickly. So I can see in a large organization where it may make sense to have embedded analysts or embedded data scientists or embedded analytics people with uh, some type of dotted line reporting structure back up. Uh, But I always kind of, uh, because one of the things is data is able to be twisted in ways that it cannot be dishonest. And it can be made to manipulate to look like things and departments are doing better than they are. Having an embedded person inevitably creates a conflict of interest where you want the department you're in to look really good. And by having that person not in there, you reimpose a, a, a position of neutrality into the way in which you analyze the data. And so I I guess it's a very long answer to say I like having centralized things because of all the reasons above. I could see places where because of constraints, you might want to have embedded people, but they would need to be managed in a very careful way to ensure that all the work that you've done in terms of uh, what we described is uh, continues to propagate forward and doesn't get corrupted. Where do you see our industry going into into the future. What do you think is is coming up? Where are we developing to? What is go- data science going to look like in the future in terms of either what we practice or how we work in organizations? You know, it's one of the things that I think about a lot, and I, I I'm a little bit scared for a couple of reasons. One, I I, I draw a lot of parallels always to history because I've always enjoyed you know history, and yes. I think we are entering the era of what's the what's the appropriate term? I think we are entering the world of expectations expectation management. And what I mean by that is companies are starting to believe that data is the solution to everything. And we are entering a time when, oh, we'll hire a data scientist. They'll tell us the answer. Or we'll hire this. They'll tell us the answer. And data science is becoming this panacea where it will provide all of the solutions by simply researching it. And of course, data science can't do that. It is a component of decision making. It is not there to drive decision making. And if you look back in the 1980s, robotics was the big thing. Robots were going to take over. Robots were going to build all our cars. Robots were going to come into our houses. And, and we suffered again from expectation management. Expectations were sky high that robots would take over. And when it, guess what? Robots were not able to get there because they were not sophisticated enough, because we didn't have the technology. People say, oh, yeah, robots stink. And then the robotics industry fell apart for 20 years. You know, and it's only recently mm. that you really had the emergence of companies like iRobot and things like that, where you're able to actually have robots have some type of a function. And I worry that in this period of expectation management, we're not doing a great job at it. We're having more and more companies and we're seeing the demand for data science people skyrocket. And, you know, talking about the sexiest job of the 21st century and all this kind of stuff. And I worry that at some point, people in industry are going to say, what's the big deal? I didn't get much out of it. It didn't help solve the problems of the company. Well, you know what? It's not going to, but no one is taking that time. So I worry about that. And I worry about where we're going to end up as a as data people in the future if we don't start pushing back a little bit on or start pushing back aggressively on what people expect us to be able to solve for them. But, you know, that aside, I think the rise of automated learning engines, companies like DataRobot are 
fantastic to look at. Because if you think about what it really does, is it puts the emphasis not so much on being able to know how to program in Python, but being able to understand what you're getting out of the thing. It doesn't make any sense. So it allows people that are less technical, but more intuitive and more understanding of math, perhaps more understanding of how this information interacts with the real world to be able to analyze and to look at that information is really fascinating to me. And I think that is where we're starting to see things. We'll certainly start to see things continue to evolve. But we have AI for AI, if you will, uh, machine learning for machine learning. Uh, and, and that will allow more creative thinkers than I think we are able to get into the industry now who feel that there is that very high barrier to entry because of all of these skills that they're expected to have, uh, be able to enter this area and be able to deploy some of their uh, of their creative ways of looking at things and different lenses that they bring and different intuitions that they bring in order to extract even deeper meaningful insights than we've been able to do historically. And, and do you think that as, as we continue down that path of, of essentially automating the technical work uh, and, and as we uh, start to teach people more about intuition in, in, in data, do you see that in that type of world, would we still have a centralized data science team or maybe not, not centralized, but a, maybe would we still have a single data science team or, or how do you think it would look in organizations? Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I, again, as I always like to draw parallels, think about when Dreamweaver merged back from uh, uh, back in the old days. So, you know, back then when you wanted to do a website, you got to learn how to code in HTML. Think about how many creative artists who just couldn't figure out HTML, couldn't interact mm. with the web. Dreamweaver came along and said, hey, guess what? Mm. You just draw your pictures. Don't worry about that stuff over there. We'll handle it. We'll code the HTML. But you go ahead and you draw your beautiful pictures. And then the explosion of digital design on the web was remarkable. So I think that, but, and again, in a parallel, we haven't had, um, this, we haven't had a breakdown now of embedded digital artists sitting all over the company. We still have a graphic design group. So I think we can draw the same parallels there and say, okay, maybe we won't need then 30 people crunching away at Python all day long. Maybe we can get away with 15 really kind of interesting people. But I still think that the arguments for why it needs to be centralized are still there. I mean, you still, for the same reason that you can't have me go, you know, draw up a website. I mean, I just don't have that skill set. I don't know how to draw. I understand fundamentally what a website should look like. It's never going to look pretty if I do it. The same way that I don't think uh, a non-analytically driven or analytically, you know, programmed person in their mind is going to be able to extract insight even though we have automated machine learning models, uh, it's still not going to make much sense to them. You're still going to need somebody who understands fundamentally what's going on in the background, uh, if not so much programming, if just understanding conceptually what's going on, you know, what is what is gradient descent, what's actually happening back there, you know, so that they can then say, oh, I understand now when I do this feature engineering on the front, what might happen in the back to create that. Okay, now I understand. So that whole process, I think, still continues. And I still think that's the argument for centralized analytics. But I, I think it's just going to take on a different rule, a different type of personality in the future as it continues to evolve. I, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I, I wish we could go on longer, but I'm going to be respectful <laughs> of your time. <laughs> so I, I, I only have one, one last question for you. And I wanted to ask you for, for a takeaway for the listeners. So people mm -hmm. either aspiring data scientists or data scientists early in their career or people looking to move into management and leadership in data science, uh, what would be some things that you would like them to, to think about 
as they're progressing through their careers? What would be a, a takeaway that they can conjure after the, the episode? I guess I would impart a couple pieces of knowledge. Number one, uh, and these are in no particular order, read everything you can read. Don't be tied into standard text. Don't be reading SQL books at night. Don't be reading Python books. And read everything because everything you learn becomes one of the things that you keep in the back of your mind by which you look at data. Don't worry so much about learning all the technologies or tools. Worry about what it means. And I think that gets lost so often today. You know, it's great to build this inventory of things that you know how to do because we're always in a race to build a better resume. Worry about what it means. You know, the, one of the greatest pieces of advice that I got from a, a boss of mine, and it's a very simple sentence. He used to say to me, David, let the data lead you. And it, it's so simple, but it had a profound impact on me. And I think that's one of the things that people should take away is think about what it means. Let the data guide you as you go along your path in life and understand what you're doing and what it all is connected to. And that's where the reading comes into, because you need to understand more than your world. You can't walk through the particular types of world that we are in with blinders on. You can't be a technologist only. You have to be a worldist. You have to be able to look around and say, I see how this all connects into each other. I see how all this interrelates because what we are all about is making sense of it all. And a lot of times making sense of it all is bridging horizontally across a lot of vertically integrated worlds. And if you don't understand what's going on in those other columns, you're never going to be able to make compelling arguments about how your data needs to be connected. So I, I would really encourage people to always learn, always read, listen to anything you can, even if you disagree with it, it's okay. It helps you to make a stronger person out of yourself because you have to formulate the argument why you think that person is wrong. But yes. always, always, always learn, always read, and don't worry so much about making all the stops on that silly subway map that we saw before. Worry about what it all means. Learn the soft skills because that's what's going to make you valuable in the end. Always pick up another technology, but you can't always pick up intuition. You've got to learn that from the very beginning and really work on developing that as a skill set. Oh, and I think the last thing Amazing. is if someone someone's yeah. going to be management, be kind, be kind, be respectful of the people who work for you. Everyone there has something to offer and 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 be aware of who they are and, and help to guide them along their career. They'll be eternally grateful to you and you'll get a very loyal, very hardworking person that will, will stay with you for the rest of your life. You know, I, I always keep in touch with all the people that have ever worked for me and it's been valuable. I continue to learn from them every day and, and it's wonderful. That's incredible. That is incredible. Uh, David, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing all your, your views, your insights. It's been extremely valuable and I can't, I can't thank you enough. So thank I've you had so a much wonderful for time. time. Thank you very much for having me today. It's been great. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.